All right, so hypothetical question for you. How many people saw Aladdin? Okay, you don't need to be embarrassed, men. You can watch Disney movies and still be manly. Um, uh, the genie, okay? There's a big blue genie played by Robin Williams, and uh, he's very, you know, funny character and such. But as I was thinking about Romans, I kind of was thinking about this, uh, this genie in, uh, in uh, the movie Aladdin. And the question, hypothetical, that I wanted to ask is, if you met him, if you met that big blue genie and he came to you and said, I've grant you three wishes, I'm a genie, that's what we do, what would you wish for? Okay, so think in your head for a moment. The genie actually appears, three wishes, what would you wish for? Uh, I'm guessing that some would wish for money and, and power and fame and maybe a career or something with a relationship or Maybe someone would be wise to say, I want more wishes or something along those lines. But as I'm asking the question, what would you wish for? It's fun to, to think about, um, but I want to ask kind of a question behind that of why would you wish for those things? What is it that, you know, you had three wishes, why those three things? What, what did you pick those wishes uh, for? And I think in many ways, those wishes reveal something actually about the wisher, meaning you or me. Uh, so what we're wishing for at some level is something that we feel like we need, something that we feel like we're missing, something that's maybe a void in our life that if we just had this. Now, outside of genies not existing, uh, two major problems with this little genie scenario is uh, I've never really seen it work out well where a genie who granted in, in the movies uh, where it worked out well for the person because the genie is obligated to give the wisher his wishes, even if those wishes will ultimately destroy their life or destroy the lives of those around them. So problem number one is the genie just gives you whatever you wish for, regardless of the consequences of the wish. And then secondly, the wisher doesn't ultimately know what to wish for because the wisher's knowledge is at best limited. You have no idea what you're wishing for, what impact it will actually have on your life and the lives of those around you. So you can't really trust the genie because ultimately he doesn't really care because uh, if he cared, he would give you what was not only good and best, but he just gives you what you ask for. So ultimately the genie doesn't care. You can't trust him. And secondly, you can't even trust yourself because you don't even know if what you're asking for is really going to bring in your life what you're hoping uh, the wish would bring. Now, I'll switch gears here, uh, hypothetical scenario, obviously, but I, I sense as I was getting ready for this message, there's a lot of us who approach God much like we would approach a genie. What I mean by that is, have you ever asked yourself the question, God, if, or said this, or thought this, if only God would do this, I would be so much better off. God, if you would only do this, if you would only give me this, if you would only take me here, um, if you would only do this, my life would be more whatever, complete, more full, more meaningful, more significant. I'm venturing, I'm, I would venture a guess that all of us at some point have thought that or actually uttered the words, God, if you would only do this, why? Why is a big question I'm going to be stuck on today is why do we do that? Why do we approach God with the, the attitude, the mentality of, God, if you would only do this. And I think 
the answer to the why is ultimately wrapped up in the fact that we don't trust God. As we look at our lives, we look around our lives, what we have or what we don't have, what's going on or what's not going on, we ultimately think to ourselves and ultimately sometimes even say to ourselves, saying to God, if you would only do this, everything else would be fine. And I think at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, many of us, if not all of us at some level, really struggle to trust God. And this is a big question that I just, I'll I'll stop here for a moment. Do you trust God? As you examine your life uh, up to this point, what's happened in your life, what's not happened in your life, what's going on currently in your circumstances, in your situation? Do you look at your life and say, I can't believe that happened and that should have happened? And, or do you actually look at your life and say, I look at the totality of my, my life thus far and I can see just God's hand everywhere? I think many of us want to be able to say that, but we get really easily wrapped up and tripped up and just looking around at what is and what's not and we really have a hard time trusting God. Now, as I ask you the question, do you trust God? There's obviously three responses, at least three. Yes, I trust God. No, I don't trust God. Or I'm actually confused. I don't know which one I should be. Yes or no. So my heart today for us as we walk through uh, these very, I think, very profound, very powerful verses in Romans uh, chapter 8, I'm going to go on a a limb here and, and presuppose that all of us in this room, and I don't obviously know all of you, and I don't know your spiritual background and where you are, but that there would be something in us that would say, I really want to trust God. You might be there already, but you're like, I, I know that that's just words. It's not reflective in how I live. So my presupposition is that we are in a place where we want to trust God. And so the question that I'm asking today is simply this. Um, Why can we trust God? If we all are in a place where we want to trust God and grow in trusting God, then you have to understand the why. Why would you trust God? Why can you trust God? It's one thing to say, I I do trust God, but circumstances and situations awfully change that very quickly. But if you know why you trust God, then no matter what happens in your life or doesn't happen in your life or what has happened in your life or what will happen in your life, it's not going to change your ability to trust God because your foundation is solid on this is why I trust God. So I'm going to give three reasons of why in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, of why we can trust God. This is what Romans 8 says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, He also glorified. So much is in those three verses right there. Uh, But the question that I'm going to focus on this morning is the question of why. I assume we want to, we long to, we struggle to, but this morning I really want to hit hard three reasons, according to Romans 8, 28 through 30, 
of why we can trust God, and this is number one. Number one of why we can trust God is simply this. We can trust God because God is sovereign. So number one is we can trust God because God is sovereign. So the why of why we can trust God, number one, because God is sovereign. I'll read verse 28 one more time. It says this, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, notice Paul does not start that verse with, we wish or we hope. Paul clearly says, we know. This is something that we can have absolute certainty, that we can know this. We can go to the bank with this knowledge. We know that in all things, God is at work. I don't have to wonder about that. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to be confused about that. I don't even have to hope for that. I can know that for sure, that in all things, no matter what is, and all means everything, big junk drawer for my life, everything falls under the umbrella of all. So as I consider the all, I can have absolute certainty. I can know for sure that God is in the all. Now, sovereignty, I'm sure it's a word that you've heard at least once in your life, but I wanted to articulate what does it mean to say that God is sovereign? way to understand this is just simply complete control. God has complete control or God has complete authority or God is able to accomplish whatever he sets out to do. Another way to think about this is God reigns supreme. So this truth, we can trust God because God is sovereign, is because nothing can thwart the plans of God. That all of my life, everything that has happened, is happening, will happen, I can know for sure that God's in the midst of all of it. So in other words, nothing will touch your, your life that is not under the control or direction of God. There is nothing that could ever happen to you that it would not be under the complete knowledge, authority of God. Another way to say this is nothing comes into our lives that God does not allow and use or use to accomplish his perfect will. I could never look at anything in my life, and I know immediately our minds go to, well, what about this tragic thing that happened, or, or what about this horrific thing that happened? I could never point to anything in my life and say, yeah, God was not in that at all. God was not part of that, or God did not allow that to happen. Another way to understand sovereignty Everything that happens in this life is being used by God for our eternal good. Everything that happens in this life is being used by God for our eternal good. Now, I realize that for some, this knowledge, the sovereignty of God is not really a very comforting thought or a, comfort, or a comforting doctrine because all things includes your hurts, your disappointments, people who have hurt you or done wrong to you. And so we immediately look at that, and how could God possibly use this person who molested me, who raped me, who abused me sexually, physically, emotionally, mentally? And we immediately look to the hurts, disappointments, and pains, the suffering in our life, and we declare, wow, if, if God was in that, then, then God clearly is not good. Well, I can sit before you and tell you this is what Romans 8.28 teaches, is that the why of why I can trust God is because God is completely sovereign 
in all of the events of my life, and he's using all of the events of my life, good and evil, painful, sometimes peaceful, he's using all of those events in my life for my good, and ultimately, I think, to glorify God as well. Now, I want to be clear that Paul did not say or is not saying that all things are good. He's not saying that all things are good. So if you look at the evil that has been done to us, and let's be honest, the evil that we've done to other people, he's not declaring those sinful, evil things as that's good. God is saying he will use all things, including good and bad and evil, uh, for our good. I want us to be clear because I think when a lot of people talk about Romans 8.28, they, at some level, kind of pin evil or sin on God. That God is somehow evil and sinned against us because he did this. So be very clear, Paul is not saying that all things are good, but what Paul is saying is that God takes all things, including the evil things, and uses it to accomplish God's purposes uh, in our life. Now, it's also pretty clear that is, the question is, God, God is sovereign over all, but is Romans 8.28 for all? Like, is this just a universal blanket statement? Does it apply to everybody? And I think if you were listening to uh, the verses I read it, it's pretty clear uh, that it doesn't. And we know that in all things, God works for the good, and there's a certain per- person that God is at work for. For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this is not teaching that God is not sovereign over all of his creation. What this is clearly saying is, read it again, that all things God works for the good of those who love him. So again, it doesn't mean that God's not sovereign over those who do not love him, but to those who do not love God, meaning those people who are not Christians, who have not confessed Jesus, uh, God's Son, as their Savior, as their Lord, this verse, this truth of God's sovereignty is absolutely not comforting. It's not even encouraging. But to the person who loves God, and the love of God has penetrated their heart, their life, they're a Christian, they're following Jesus, this is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Now, Why uh, is the truth that God is sovereign comforting to those who love him? Like, why would this at all bring comfort to you? If you think about if you know your life, you know what's happened or is happening or maybe what you think will happen, why should the sovereignty of God lead you to trust him? Why should it lead you to actually have comfort? I'll give you three very quick ones. I can look back at all of the events of my life, good or bad, and understand that God used it for my good. That's comforting to me. I can look back at all of the events of my life, good or bad, and I can see in in part, not in full, of how God used that for my eternal good. Secondly, I can look around at all that is currently happening in my life, good or bad, and I know that God is at work. And thirdly, I can look forward with confidence that no matter what happens in this life, God is using all of it for my good, for his glory, and my eternal good. So why, if you're a Christian, if you've made a confession of faith in Jesus, 
why this should bring such incredible comfort to you is you can look backwards, you can look around you, and you can look forward, and you can say, in all of this, God is at work. And not just randomly at work, he's at work for my eternal good. Now, there's some of us who, uh, and this is not all of our story, uh, I've, I know that just people I've, I meet with, whether it's here in this church or just people I've met with over the years, their pain is so substantial. The hurt, the wound, what they have been, the torture that they have gone through. And I want you to know that nowhere in Scripture does God ever belittle someone's pain. Nowhere in Scripture will you find a verse, would you just suck it up already? Toughen up. No, we see a God who weeps, a God who cries, a God who hurts, a God who longs. So nowhere in Scripture is there the attitude that God somehow belittles our pain. So rather what this doctrine or the truth of the God's, God is sovereign is that there's purpose in my pain. There is purpose in my suffering. These are, I just wanted to highlight a few things that I feel like um, in about 25 years of walking with God have learned along the way of how this truth of God is sovereign has really impacted my life. And I'm just going to give you a few, but I really want you to understand, uh, and I'm giving myself as an example, some practical examples of I want you to see that this is a truth that should radically form and transform our lives because God is sovereign. And this is one truth. Uh, I'll never comprehend or understand how all things are used for our eternal good. And what I've learned about, learned about that is I'm okay with that. I'll repeat that. I'll never comprehend or understand how all things are used for our eternal good, and I'm okay with that. There must come a point in time where you make the confession is, I am not going to know everything. I am not going to know, bless you, how God used that. This hurt, this pain, this suffering. I, I will not in this life know how God used it. And you have to come to a place of peace to say, I'm okay with that because God does know. He is sovereign. He is in control. And I trust that God is using this for my good. When I would really struggle and have intense struggles of, God, what's up with this? How could you allow this? Why are you doing this? It led me to great despair when I tried to have everything figured out. And I think one of the most freeing ways to live your life is where you don't have to understand all. If you don't come to a place where you just let that go and say, I'm okay with not knowing everything because I know the one who knows everything and he's good. And he's working these all for my good. I was thinking of uh, a Bible story of Daniel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there was uh, a really godly man named Daniel. And uh, towards the end of Daniel's life, when he was about 85 years old, uh, he went under some serious attack and persecution and went through some serious suffering uh, to the point of he was lied against and uh, set up for things that he ultimately did not do. And the crime that he was accused of committing uh, demanded his life. And the way that his life would be given is in uh, the lion's pit. And I can only imagine after about 80 some odd years of walking with God, Daniel thinking to himself, really? 
I'm in a lion's pit. This is, God, what you have for me. This is, after faithfully loving you, serving you, being obedient to you, being a voice for you, being hands for you, I'm in a lion's pit at 85 years old. I'm about to drop down into this pit, and these animals are going to tear my flesh from my bones. Like, God, that's what, what possibly, God, could you have good come from that? Scripture doesn't record the thoughts of Daniel when he was in the lion's pit. But um, if you have a Bible, I'm not going to put this up on the screen, but I wanted to read to you uh, very quickly uh, what happened uh, the night that Daniel went into the lion's den. Uh, At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. He had spent the night there. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions. I wonder how long the pause was. I'm kind of thinking Daniel's like, I'm going to make this, I'm going to hold out here for a little bit. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, O king. Daniel is rescued by God from the lion's den. But I I wonder at some level, is Daniel thinking, what was the point of this exercise? For me to somehow see that God could close the mouths of lions? I'm sure Daniel could have confessed that without having to experience it. So what was the point? And I wonder, once Daniel heard a letter that the king who put Daniel in the lion's den sent to all the surrounding nations. I wonder if once he heard the letter that was read, Daniel said to himself, oh, that's why. That's why I had to sleep in the the pit with the lions. This is the letter uh, that the king sent. At the king's command, uh, I'm starting in verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. Okay, so if the king writes a letter and decrees that it's going everywhere over the entire known world. And this was what the letter said. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Isn't that amazing? Do you think that there was a point where Daniel was like, oh, I get it now. The whole world is going to know who God is and how good God is and how sovereign God is and how powerful God is. I don't know how all of the events of my life, and you will not know how all of the events of your life will be used for your good, for the benefit of others and the glory of God. I submit that I am okay with that. I am so free now to live of, I can just say, I don't need to know anymore. And I just pictured Daniel of, he got a picture of how God used a knight in a pit with lions so that the known world, the known universe would know that God is God and there's none like him. A second thing I've learned about uh, just the sovereignty of God uh, in my life, God's plans and purposes are better than mine, 
even if that means pain, suffering, hurt, disappointment along the way. I, you have to come to a point in time where you confess, God, your plan is so much better. And stop acting like you're driving the car of your life, as it were, and you actually have a clue as to where you're going. God's plans and purposes are better than mine, even if that means pain, suffering, hurt, disappointment along the way. Uh, a verse in Isaiah that speaks to this, Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts uh, than your thoughts. I know sometimes we think, oh, if God would just do this, and God just says, you have no idea what you're talking about. How many people watch the show 24? It's okay, you don't need to be embarrassed, it's a good show. A bit violent, but nonetheless. How many times for those of you who've watched the show, you're watching and you just come to this conclusion, if everyone would just listen to Jack Bauer, everything would be fine. Like everyone is working against this man, Jack. And if everyone would just submit to Jack and say, you clearly know what you're, you're doing. So apparently if you think you need to torture, I'm sure it's gonna be used for something good. I think honestly, a lot of us approach God as if we're Jack Bauer. God, if you would just listen to me, if you would just do what I'm encouraging you to do, and God is too good, too kind, and too loving to listen to us. God's plans and purposes are better than mine, even if that means pain, suffering, hurt, and disappointment along the way. I like how uh, author uh, Jerry Bridges said it. He said this, the sovereignty of God is often questioned because man does not understand what God is doing. And because he does not act as we think he should, we conclude he cannot act as we think he would. It's another way of saying we struggle with the sovereignty of God because God doesn't do what we think God should do. And in humility, we have to remind ourselves we are not God. And I am thankful that I am personally not God of my life because my life would be in ruins. And I'm thankful that you are not God of your life because the same would be true. The third thing that I have learned about the sovereignty of God is this. God will allow us to go our own way, not so we hit a dead end, but so we get to the end of ourselves. There was a season in my late teens and early 20s where I was just, I was hell-bent on doing my own thing. I didn't care about anyone else in the world except myself. I was king of my own little small world. I didn't really care about anyone. or I was the epitome of just selfishness. If I wanted to do it, I did it. If I wanted to think it, I thought it. If I wanted to go there, I went there. I just didn't care. It was the ultimate example of a self-centered, self-sufficient lifestyle. And I look back and it was my most miserable years. But what I learned about the sovereignty of God in those years is God will allow us to go our own way, not so we hit dead end, but so we get to the end of ourselves. Be very honest and tell you that some of you are here today, you have not gotten to the end of yourselves. And God in his sovereignty, he's still in control. He is still all powerful and all knowing. He will let you go your own way. No matter how much pain and suffering it will cause you, he will let you go your own way until you get to the point in your life 
where you finally say Jesus plus nothing is enough. I really, uh, and I still get discouraged when I see people who are hell-bent on just doing their own thing. They're just self-centered, self-focused. They only care about themselves. That still discourages me. But now because I understand the sovereignty of God, I am greatly encouraged that God is even using that, their selfishness, their self-centeredness, that he is using the very thing, using them in their life, that they would be broken. And they'd finally get to the point of, it's not Jesus plus this relationship and Jesus plus this job and Jesus plus whatever. It's Jesus plus nothing equals enough. God will allow us to go our own way, not so we hit dead end, but so we get to the end of ourselves. I hope just in Romans 8.28 that one of the truths you take away from this morning is you find great comfort and encouragement in that God is sovereign over all things, not just some things or a few things, the big things or the minor things, that in all things God is completely sovereign. That's the first reason of why we can trust him. The second reason of why we can trust God is this. We can trust God because God is actively working for our good. There has never been a point in time in the history of the world where God looked at someone's circumstances and said to himself, well, holy cow, I did not see that one coming. Hey, Jesus, what, what do you, Holy Spirit, I'm going to need your help on this one. I, I'm perplexed. Where did this one come from? God is not a reactive God. God is a proactive God. He is constantly, he is continually working to accomplish our good, his purposes in our life. By the time I even know that there's a problem, by the time that the suffering has even, I've even identified it as suffering or pain in my life, I can have complete confidence that God has already been at work that none of my pains or suffering, nothing in my life will ever take God by surprise. And I want to be very clear that when we talk about good, because Paul mentions that God is working for our good, we're talking about our eternal good, our holistic good. I think sometimes I hear people quote Romans 8.28 when someone loses a job. Oh, don't worry, because God's got an even better job for you that's going to have more money for you. Really? How do you know that? Maybe God stripped that job out of the person's life because it was just good old-fashioned idolatry. And if they didn't lose that job, they would lose themselves. I hear often in relationships, a, a fiancé breaks the relationship off or a boyfriend, girlfriend. Oh, do not worry because God has someone who is so much better for you and make you so much more happier. Really? How do you know that? Maybe the very thing that God is doing is trying to strip you of a relationship so you don't put someone else on a pedestal, whether it's a man or a woman, in the place where God should be. I think we apply that God is working for our good, and we think good means our materialistic good, whether it's a relational good, a financial good, a career good. A... That's not the good God's talking about. That's not the good Paul is talking about. He's talking about our eternal good, our, our purpose that God has for us, that he's working out in all of the events of our lives. Now, I know that typically when people say that, 
Uh, if you've ever said that to someone, my point, I'm not trying to shame you like, oh, make you feel bad that you said that. I think the intent generally is good of I want to comfort or encourage this person who just lost a job or has a broken relationship. So I'm not suggesting we become this cold-hearted community where we're like, suck it up, man, Romans 8.28, what's your problem? <laughs> like, that would be a misuse of Romans 8.28. A proper use of Romans 8.28 would be, let me just sit with you. Let me just come alongside you and encourage you. I think one of the things that Job's friends, there was so much wisdom in what they did in the beginning, is they sat with a broken brother for 10 days, I think it was, and they didn't say anything. I think sometimes we come in and try to help people too much that we actually end up hurting them with things like, come on, man, Romans 8.28, God's sovereign. Let's giddy up. Learn to sit with people. And then using a lot of wisdom and discernment, comfort them with Scripture appropriately used. I don't know how God's at work in this. I'm not going to claim to be a prophet and say, well, that's what God's doing. But I do know that God's at work in this situation, and I'm really excited to see how God unfolds this for you. And don't make silly promises of there will be another boy or another girl or another job or another house. Another, Don't do that. How should we, how should knowing that God actively is actively working for our good to accomplish his purpose impact the way I live every day? The fact that I know that God is actively working for my eternal good, how should that impact just day-to-day life? I'm going to give you a few very quick ideas um, of how this should impact how we live. And number one is it should create in us perseverance meaning we can stop praying prayers of, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll do this. God, if you just resolve this in my life, I promise I won't do that again. And we can start praying prayers that sound very much like this. God, thank you for where I am and for what's going on. I trust that you're at work. One of the things, knowing that God is at work in all of my stuff, my circumstances, all of the things for my eternal good, helps me to persevere. So I'm not constantly trying to wiggle my way out of something or pray my way out of this. I can honestly just sit before God and just say, I thank you, God, for where I am. The second one I'll give you is it should stir in us a a sense of gratitude. No matter how uncomfortable you are, no matter how great the pain is, no matter how severe the suffering is, and again, no one's pain is being belittled by saying this. But in that moment of my greatest suffering, I can just, in gratitude, say, God, I just see this as evidence that you're working my life. I don't claim to know how or what's going on, but I just give thanks that you're doing something. And I tell you what, if God will bring suffering and pain and trials in your life just to get you to the point where you recognize confess that God is at work in your life. Those are two things. Creates perseverance, stirs a sense of gratitude. Before I tell you the the last one of why we should trust God or why we can trust God, I just want you to pause for a minute. If you have a pen, 
uh, and there's pens in front of you. Where's God at work right now? Where's God at work in your life? This is not a question that we ask ourselves once a year, kind of quarterly, not even monthly, not even weekly. Every day we have the opportunity to say, God, where are you at work in my life? Open my eyes to see it. I think sometimes some of us are living in such prosperity, as it were, everything's fine. I'm paying my bills. I got a pretty good job. Got a roof over my head. And we don't stop to ask ourselves, God, where are you at work in our lives? And it could be just saying, you're in an incredible season of just blessing right now. And I want you to see that's not because of you and you're some great person. You're so talented. You're so gifted. No, it's because I'm good. Some of you, we don't ask this question until we're about three, four weeks into our painful moments. Our suffering has just taken a toll. And then finally, we just ask ourselves, God, what is going on? So I just want us to ask, what is God doing in your life? Not the person around you, not the person you live with, but you. Romans 8.28 says God is at work in all of our lives, using all of the things for our good to accomplish his purpose. Where is God at work in your life? Write it down. The third reason, and we'll finish up with this. We can trust God, and you've been hearing me say this throughout, but we can trust God because God is good. The genie analogy was silly at best, but in that little metaphor, what stands out to me is we got a genie who doesn't care. And I'm thankful that when I consider the God of the scriptures, the God that has revealed himself to us. I'm thankful that I can say, I can trust God because God is good. Like how uh, Mr. Spurgeon said it, he said this, we cannot always trace God's hand, but we can always trust in God's heart. I can't always put the puzzle together. I can't always put the pieces together, but the one piece that is constant is I can, I can always come back to, I just don't know what's happening it seems like everything's falling apart, but I know God's heart, and God's heart is good. And he's using all of this, not just some, but all of this for my good, eternal good, to accomplish his purpose. So the third one, we can trust God because God is good. I'm going to read uh, the last two verses, Romans 8, verse 29 through 30. And it says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. By, uh, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, I realize that uh, there's like 20 sermons you could preach just on those two verses right there. Uh, so a lot could be said about these two verses. And as you listened to those verses... You've got the foreknowledge of God, which much could be said about God's foreknowledge. What exactly does God know? You've got the doctrine of election. So for people who love having conversations about election and predestination, same thing here, uh, and free will, I want you to know this is rooted in Scripture, not rooted in someone named John Calvin. 
I want you to know that Scripture actually teaches the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election. Paul mentions here the doctrine of sanctification, being made into the image of his Son, of Christ. The doctrine of calling, of how God calls us, softens us to him, towards him. The doctrine of justification, the doctrine of glorification. So in these two verses, you've got some major doctrines. And what I'm not going to, we've been talking actually about a lot of these things throughout Romans uh, chapter 1 through where we are today. So rather than go off on just a theological discourse, I wanted to ask a very simple question of how do these doctrinal truths that Paul mentions in Romans 8.28, how do they point to the goodness of God in our lives? The emphasis, if you notice, the emphasis just on these two verses is on God meaning he does everything. There was nothing that we did. It was his foreknowledge, his election, his sanctification, his calling, his justification, his glorification. God did it all. God did not wait in the heavens for us to clean ourselves up, to work ourselves to him. God accomplished everything. God did it all. And when I consider that amazing, just simple truth, as I look at these doctrines, I just, God is so good. So when I consider, uh, he is the one who knew us completely, okay? Before you were even born, before all of creation, God had foreknowledge of who you are. God had complete foreknowledge of who you would be, what you would do, which, let's be honest, God then also foreknew that we would be prideful, that we would be sinful, that we would be wicked, that we would be evil, And I'm thankful that in God's foreknowledge, it didn't keep him away. He actually sent his son. He came close. He drew near. He came to us. He is the one who chose us. I want to be very clear. This is actually something uh, we're going to be doing, by the way, a side announcement, uh, our I Love the Church class uh, coming up starting in May, which is not coming up. It's two months from now, but we talk a lot about this doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. But I wanted to be clear because Paul says, he is the one who chose us. I want you to know, if you have a relationship with God right now, it's because he chose you. I still make a decision to receive and to accept, but God is the one who has softened my heart, who has opened my heart, opened my mind to understand who he is, what he's done to respond to him. This, unfortunately, has been a very divisive doctrine in the church, the doctrine of election. And I'm not going to at all unpack, we'll wait until we uh, actually hit Romans chapter 9, because Romans chapter 9 says a lot about election. But in my study of this doctrine uh, over the past few years, uh, I came across something that uh, Charles Spurgeon had wrote uh, on this doctrine, and I can just tell you that it... uh, blessed me immensely, and I hope it does for you as well. This is what Spurgeon says. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept this doctrine. If we're honest with ourselves, 
it sh- this doctrine of election should cause a great sense of gratitude that God, in his foreknowledge, knew who we were, knew how hard-hearted we would be, and he still chose us, set his affection, sent his son for us. So he foreknew, he chose. The second or third one Paul mentioned is he is the one who will sanctify us. Meaning if I want to grow into Christ's likeness, my growth is caused by God. The fourth one, he is the one who calls us, meaning he is the one who softens my heart, our hearts towards him. Fifthly, he is the one who justifies. We spent a lot of time on this. He is the one who declares us righteous. Why? Well, because of Jesus, not because you did a righteous thing. Lastly, he is the one who glorifies. And this is a really interesting one. When we talk about glorification, we're talking about heaven, that God, Jesus has been glorified, and we too will be glorified. But what Paul says is in, uh, at the end of verse 30, uh, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. What I love about this is glorified is in the past tense. And the way Paul's thinking about this is this has actually already happened. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm still alive. I'm not glorified. What Paul is doing here by putting that we have been glorified in the past tense is that glorification is so certain that it's already happened. So I obviously I could say so much about these different doctrines, but as you go through foreknowledge of God, election, sanctification, calling, justification, glorification. My heart for you today was this, that God did all of that for you. Why? Because God is good. I could not do any of those things on my own. And so as I read these two verses, I'm not overwhelmed with doctrinal complexities. I'm actually overwhelmed with, wow, he would do that? He would do that for me? For you, he knew me. He still chose and called me. He looks at me and says, I'm, I want you to look like my, my son, Jesus, and I'm gonna help grow you into his likeness. I'm gonna declare you righteous and you will be glorified. He, he did all of that. Why? Because God is good. We will stop here with this last question of what shall your response be to the sovereignty of God, to the activity of God, and to the goodness of God? I see in this that we would be a people that would say, I will trust you, God, because you're sovereign, because you're active, and because you're good. I will trust you in all things, in all times, in all places. No matter what may happen tomorrow, no matter what may happen a year from now, God, I see that in all things you are sovereign. God, I see that in all things you are actively working for my eternal good, that your purposes would be accomplished. And God, I see that in all things you are good. I've already asked you the question of what is God calling you um, uh, or I ask the question, where do you see God at work in your life? And I wonder, as we would just finish and uh, spend some time in worship and communion, what do you think God's calling you to trust him with right now? As you sit here, what is God calling you to trust him with right now?
And I can just tell you, a lot of that answer is summed up in what we say yes to and what we say no to. Some of us need to say yes to, I need serving, giving. I need to say yes to this relationship. I need to say yes to this move. I need to say yes to this. Why? Because God's calling you to trust him with your serving, with your giving, with your moving, with a change in your life. Some of you, what God's calling you to trust him with is the no's. Say no to that relationship. Say no to that career. Say no to whatever. So much of what we're called, invited to trust God with is just simply seen in what we're saying yes to and what we're saying no to. So I'll ask one last time, what is God calling you to trust him with? I just want you to know the why you can trust him. Because he's sovereign because he's actively working in your life, and because he's good.